little bit of time he has now with the kids and his wife or whoever, like he wasn't there because his mind was, yeah. his mind was in Afghanistan. He was he was there, and that's basically a similar place where I was. And or it goes the other way, you know. The guys managed to do that switch, and then that time with with the family was just so amazing, but then so short to then switch off, and then all they think of, oh, I've got to go back to, you know, some guys fall, you know back into the, the, the comfort side of it as well, you know, because we, yeah. we, you know, we've slept in some really horrible places and, you know, it, 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 you know, there's weeks we spent out in the, in the field, you know, sleeping under vehicles and in the desert and under a canvas. So, you know, little luxuries of having a warm shower, having a comfy bed, having yeah. a choice of food. I mean, if the living room back then was, you know, <laughs> wow, how amazing would that have been? But yeah, you know, take away food where, you know, living off ration packs for two, three, four weeks of a time, it's not nice, and um, but it's all you have. You know that's what we are there to do. Hello, this is Dr. Rowe, and you are listening to the Cicado Show with Dr. Rowe and Harms. Cicado means to seek turning points, and on this show, where two completely different generations tackle the most challenging topics that people are facing today. The mission is to provide you with what you need in order to create a turning point in your life now. Above all else, the main reason that we chose to create these shows is because we both have a passion for helping people go through life transformation, for improving their lives, for taking their lives to a completely different level. And it's our hope, our genuine sincere hope that by the end of each of these episodes, you will have gained at least one insight which you can take away and apply directly into your life. Practical tools, voices that come from both generations, younger generation with tips and tools, older generation with a sense of wisdom and experience. So you can help unlock your true potential to give you the opportunity to make changes both on a personal, professional, financial and relationship level to give you a chance to impact both your life and the lives of other people around you. So we welcome you. We welcome you to the Cicado Show. Before we jump into the show, let me just tell you a little bit about becoming a Cicado supporter now. If you love what we do on the show, have gained transformational insights and positive outcomes or any small shifts which have allowed you to create turning points in your life, then please head to cicado.com and become a supporter of the show now. By supporting the show, we can continue to expand by getting you better quality production, spending more time deep diving important topics and creating more exclusive supporter perks as well as getting great guests on. And by the way, as a thank you for becoming a supporter and depending on which supporter tier you select at cicado.com, these perks range from my weekly recipe for success emails through to audios and video courses from my 23 steps to success, which includes online modules on how to find your life balance, gaining confidence, improving your time management, making successful career transitions, understanding financial independence, creating a life purpose, understanding and how to manage your money, becoming a money master, understanding negotiation techniques, learning to communicate more effectively and so much more. So don't delay. It takes less than two minutes and you can become a Cicado supporter, helping to expand the show and get special perks as a thank you. Become a supporter now at Cicado.com. Let's get back to the show. 
Hello, it's Harms here, and welcome to another episode of The Cicado Show. And on this show, I'm going to keep the introduction very short because I'm super excited to get deep into our special guest story and extract some of the inspiration, guidance, and help that he's going to give not only myself, but the listeners listening to this. And this very much comes about because in life, more often than not, we all face a situation where we have some adversity. Now, this can be at any level, and I think Roel will talk into this space at a deeper level. And when that adversity appears in our life, what do we do next? Often the question arises, what do we do with our life once that adversity has come? Because some people can take that as this has now transformed my life in a negative way and then take a negative path. Or somebody can trans- take that transformational moment in their life and pivot like what the word cicado means, literally pivot, literally create a turning point and walk down a positive path in their life. And that's and that's the path we want to guide you through. And that will come out naturally because the guest that we have today, I'm gonna I'm gonna keep hold of his name, I'm gonna let Ro announce it. The guest that we have today will leave you with that. That's a promise. So Ro, over to you to introduce our special guest today. Thanks very much, Harms, and welcome everybody to the Cicado Show. And I've got to be honest, I am super pumped today because not only have we got an amazing guest, but an amazing human being, but also a friend of mine. And I think that's why I'm more excited than anything else. I get to hang out with him and do a podcast, which makes it even more exciting. Ladies and gentlemen, we have an incredible human being, uh, Jacko. And I'm just going to do this formally, first of all, because uh, I think it's important that you, for those of you that don't know anything about him, you get a little bit of backdrop to it and why for us it's so important to bring him in today. Uh, But then we're going to ask him to tell his story properly. But Jacko is a keen adventurer, motivational speaker, been very gifted uh, or very blessed to have him come in and speak at a few events that I've been at. In fact, he sat in an audience that I was at once teaching on real estate and he came up and shared with the audience and just absolutely blew them away. And I think it left a lot of people thinking, shit, I haven't got too many problems listening to this. Uh, world and Paralympic champion, Paralympic cyclist and world record holder. And I just want to round it off before I go into some more of the formalities, just a lovely human being. I, I've been, you know, over the years, and I've said this so many times, that when his name comes up in conversation, always this this sense that people go, what a beautiful person. And I want to say that to you, Jackie, you've just got this great calmness about you. And maybe that's shaped from what happened to you, but I think it's also just built into your DNA. And I think we'd like to extract that from you today as well. <laughs> South African born, 100%, would I be correct there? Yeah, that's it, 100% South African beef. There we go. South African beef. A member of the British Armed Forces Parachute Regiment. And this this is where the history comes in, because during Jacko's second tour in Afghanistan in 2009, which, by the way, when we're recording this, Jacko, that's like 11 years ago, isn't it? It's mad uh, to think that's 11 years It's ago. just gone so quickly. Do you feel you've aged a lot, or do you feel you've got younger in that time? You know what? I feel I feel younger, to be honest. Because you're doing yeah. so much. It's unbelievable. Yeah, life's busy. No, there's no no time to sit down. So yeah, it, it's it's crazy to think that's 11 years ago. But no, we're, we're in good shape. We're so much good. has happened, and people are going to find that out as we go through this interview. After five and a half months, just two weeks to go, Jacko sustained severe life-changing injuries. He and his platoon were engaged in enemy uh, with enemy forces, and during that, there was an intense attack. And I'm not going to go into detail, Jacko, if that's okay, because I think it's important that we hear it from you rather than me just reading something out. But I just want people to realize this was, you know, for most people, even the idea of this, if you were watching a film, you'd just be sat there stunned. 
that was the experience he he had. And despite the physical and mental trauma that Jacko went through and endured through this, he became the fir- a first-class downhill skier, which I'd forgotten about, by the way, before I came and sat down today. So that'd be great to hear a little bit about that in your story as well. Um, multiple marathon runner. For most people are thinking, I've been thinking about doing a marathon. Just bear in mind the journey that he's been on. Uh, was a member of the record-breaking team of wounded soldiers that trekked unsupported to the North Pole, joined in part by Prince Harry. Some of you might remember that. Has also climbed Alaska's 6,000-meter Mount Denali and Everest, narrowly missing the summit due to adverse weather conditions. And on top of all of that, he then went into cycling and became a member of the Great Britain Paralympic team, Competing internationally at World Championships 2013, 2014, 15, became a national champion cyclist um, multiple times and uh, has competed more recently. And I'm in my head saying the 2021, but it's officially called the 2020. Uh, triple, he's a triple, triple world champion, I should say. Like track cyclist. And I want to find out a little bit about this. I want to understand what took you into that mm-hmm. uh, champion. Two silver medals. Most recently, double Paralympic champion and three times world record holder. Is that right? I thought I was trying to write it out the other day. I've lost track. <laughs> Just you're collecting them like most people collect shoes, man. They go on. The list goes on and on and on. But yes, uh, yeah, that's right. Two times um, Paralympic champion and and three times world record holder. Three times. Yeah. Oh my gosh! And, and, and I think you and the listener. Well, I think this is when the listener's thinking. I'm, I'm sorry. Who is this guy? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, and you will and I, find out. And, and actually. Jacko will remember he recorded a video for me for a, a live event I was doing to a group of people. It's so kind of you to do that because your your head was headspace was in getting ready for the uh, the Olympics this year, and um, and you said hopefully I'll dot dot dot, and then uh, about a week later I showed all I showed the video again. I said to the audience, look, he did it, he did it, he did it. It was fantastic. Yeah. Just on a personal level for everybody, I, I met Jacko probably four or five years ago now, and it was at a dinner. We sat on the same dinner table. It was a gala dinner. And it was a charity event, I think, for for Make a Wish. I think I seem to remember. That's you were correct. there with your beautiful uh, f- uh, fiance, Catherine, and we got chatting. And there was a really strong connection. And then during the night, we spoke several times. I remember, and there was just this really sort of strong bond, instantly formed. And then Jacko and I sort of stayed in touch. Then he ended up in an audience of mine. I was talking about property, which is great. Maybe we can bring that out as well. How you mix business with everything else that you do. And um, we got to know each other. Uh, he met my kids and we just stayed in touch since then. And, and I guess part of his property journey, I've been quite lucky to be part of that as well. But the big thing for me, Jacko, is just the fact that as a human being, you find this incredible balance between being this Olympic world champion, being an amazing partner. I know that's not easy and we all, the world always looks great on the outside, myself included, but we all have challenges as well. T- to manage that, to manage your celebrity status, to be a professional speaker, and to show up on a consistent basis and then train to get to the Olympics and perform like that. It's fucking unbelievable. And I just want to say to you, just as a human being, truly an inspiration, Um, even for myself who goes out and performs in in what I do, what I think is a high level, I I reach out to your story sometimes and just remind myself, man, this is is an incredible journey. So thank you so much for coming on today and and being part of, of the podcast with myself and Harminda. It's really great to have you here. It's an absolute pleasure, and thank you so much for having me. Uh, as you know, obviously, we, like you say, we, we've we've been knowing each other on the personal level for some time, but I've also been a 
great supporter uh, and a listener of the podcast and and I've listened to so many and they like I've always taken a little bit from them at certain times and to now actually be on on the pod is is Yay. amazing. That is yeah, kind. Well, that's great. That. That's great. Yeah, tick in the box. <laughs> yeah, nice. Thank you, man. Well, look, you know what? Let, let's start with the journey. T- just tell us what has as open as you feel comfortable, because our listeners, I think, really like the authenticity of Cicado. Just just talk to us about you. Who's Jacko? How did you get to here? Warts and all the, the ups, the downs. You know, the shitty stuff, the good stuff, the stuff that's made you feel inspired in life and, and you know the times when it wasn't so good uh, all the way yeah. through you know from start from the little boy that was eating meat for whatever yeah, yeah i mean yeah <laughs> South exactly. Africa. <laughs> bol- and you're speaking to a speaking to a vegetarian and a vegan here so. exactly yeah Car- carving boltong and yeah, no. yeah. Uh, <laughs> living like off the land no yeah but, right. um no it, it you know i i it's the one thing I, I do look back on is my childhood. And, and I've had such a, a privilege and such a wonderful childhood, to be very honest. You know, uh, I, and I thank my parents for that on a regular basis because I do look back on it. And even especially in today's kind of world and society where we're faced with so many challenges on a daily basis. And, um, and I think especially in this, this world where it's all about what you do, how you look, uh, you know, how many followers you have, and all of that. You right. know, the world has changed so much since, True. you know, as uh, you know, me being a kid, and I look back on, on, on that, and and I just had such a wonderful time. You know, and again, tough times, but you know, also um, as parents, I I can't fault what they've done. They've given me so many opportunities in life, and and you know, my dad had his own tiny little business. Uh, you know, we've been bankrupt a few times, so um, even. Even in that sense, you know, it's a very big negative. But he, in that time as well, my dad taught me how the importance of money and how to look after your money. Um, yeah. Because, you know, stuff can go wrong so quickly. But in how, are your pa- general- how are your parents? I mean, were they, y- y- what sort of parents were they? Were they strict, firm? As did, can you, if you, if you were to deep, dig deep back, were any parts of that shaped up who you are today and how you've reacted yeah, to certain yeah, things? Yeah, very much. Yeah, there was definitely always some line of rule. There was always some form of discipline. Very big Christian family uh, that yeah. we come from. So there's always um, a form of structure within our house. Yes, very strict. Uh, I, I remember, it's actually, it was one of the biggest pains of me actually growing up, to be honest, because we you get to an age where you start going out and there's parties and stuff like that. And I had a curfew of 11 o'clock. <laughs> Done. You know, it doesn't matter if it's the house next door. It doesn't matter if it's the other side of town. I had to be in my bed by 11 o'clock and my mom would call me, you know, literally one second past 11. Jacko. <laughs> where are you it's 11 you're not home um and i remember but i'm like mom everyone's still here everyone's still partying and why do i have to leave <laughs> no that's the rules and it actually turned into i was known as a guy that needs to leave 11 o'clock no and way. i remember the whole party it comes 11 my phone will ring, and the whole party will quiet down and i'll speak <laughs> to my mom and i'm like hello yeah i'm okay no 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 i'm not drunk i promise you i'm on my way now i'm just saying the rounds i'm just saying goodbye <laughs> beep phones down and then the music will go again and that that's literally how it was eventually i managed to push that curfew back slightly uh, over the 11 11 11 11 11 11 11 11 11 11 11 11 11 11 11 11 11 11 11 11 11 11 11 11 11 11 11 11 11 11 11 11 11 11 11 11 11 11 11 11 11 11 11 11 11 11 11 11 11 11 11 
there, there's always been structure. There's always been discipline. There's always been some form of a rule within our house as well. So, so yeah, you know, same. Wake up in the morning. Uh, first thing you, do, you, you know, you make up your bed. You make up your bed. It's, it's how you start the day. You can't just don't just leave it untidy because that then the day starts untidy to a degree. My mom was a better clean freak, so she would actually come and redo the bed. I've done it to perfect conditions, but she'll come and redo it. <laughs> but Did yeah, that help uh, you going into the army at all? Well, uh, you know what? It, 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 it literally was little things like that. But eventually, I got to the army. I'm like. Yeah, I'm used to this. So uh, <laughs> absolutely used to this. So uh, so yeah, but no, I had a wonderful childhood. Um, my I had grandparents on the farm. Um, we lived in a, in in a town, and most of my weekends and especially holidays will be spent on the farm, outdoors. Uh, you know, running around, riding bicycles with you know with the animals and you know with on the back of a pickup with my granddad. You know, just doing all the kind of boy stuff and everything and I, and I absolutely loved every second of it and I think that's where my love for being active being outdoors uh, really came and 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 I think that's where a little seed already very early on was born to potentially go to into the military you know again we, we I've shot air rifles from a very young age I've learned to drive I think I was eight or nine and I could I could I could drive you know I was sitting on either my dad or granddad's lap and you know I was giving full control of the vehicle to a degree um so so a great deal of confidence in those areas but yeah and and like I say you know just just playing rugby and and to to a fairly decent level to a high level uh, again South African schools you know, rugby is one of the main sports, um, and yeah. and I went to a, 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 a kind of technical school, so technical Whitbank Technical High School. So doing a lot of stuff with your hands as well. So uh, fitting and turning oh, and elect- electronics and all that kind of stuff. Were you physically quite a strong? Were you? A, would you say you were almost athletic at a young age? Did that come out at that stage? Yeah, yeah, we we were. You know, at the young stage, my I was lucky. I had a I had an older sister, three years older than me. She was a bit of a tomboy, and we were always outside playing, kicking a football, rugby, cricket, on the bikes. Um, and also another element that helped as well was the fact that I think I was again it was nine or ten years old. We were watching a little bit of television that night. Uh, a bit of a evening routine with the parents after dinner we'll go and watch a show and our t- television started kind of the screen started going a bit blurry every once in a while and the next thing we knew screaming blank and there's a big puff of smoke coming out of the back of the tv and the tv blew up absolutely just went up in flames and my dad never replaced it we never from the age of 10 we never had a tv until i think there you go there you gosh, go i think till about 18 or something yeah and so I, I didn't have that distraction in my life of, oh, you know. Yeah. Sit down. Sit down. Watch a screen and do nothing. Exactly. Yeah. So, I, you know, my, my days consist of obviously school, come back, do my homework, do my learning, and then being outside. And the times I needed to kind of take my, myself away from that learning environment or studying, again, it was go outside. It wasn't like sitting in front of a TV and chill out that way. It was go get some fresh air. Um, and I look back on it now, and it was wonderful that we had that. Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's funny it's, about this. It, so well, I was going to yeah, say, sorry. when you think about this, how how what a contrast that is to the way our generation is growing up now, our children exactly. are growing up now, where yeah. actually by default it's the screen first, and all right. the other stuff is a nice to have. Maybe we'll take you to the park for five ten minutes. You can go play on your bike, but if it's raining, let's stay inside. It, it's just a fascinating contrast. And to That's then true. See- it's, it's it's almost like the other way around in terms of the thinking. You you get to go out for a little bit, but the the time is taken up by the screen. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. And and we didn't at our time was outside. So, yeah. so that definitely built that kind of again, you know, be outside, be outdoors, get fresh air, be active. Because what are you going to do outside? You're going to run, you're going to play, you're going to yeah. you know, I remember we had, we had a big wall against the the the, the garage uh, wall and we draw my my sister sprayed a um, a big white line across the wall and that was just the the height of a tennis net you know a tennis court so we were playing tennis against each other against the wall um, and this you know so many different things so which is amazing and it just kept us active it just kept us busy and 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 like I said that was why I feel like I've just had this wonderful brilliant upbringing um, in terms of and and so privileged to be outside so much. Yeah. And did you, so, so on, on that journey, where, where, what was the point where you sort of made that shift towards the military and that was your direction? Was it an inspiration from somebody else or was it a self-driven thing? Yeah. Like I've, I've, I've had this um, a passion about either the military in South Africa, I actually wanted to join the police force. So it was just after I left school, I was a bit unsure of where I wanted to go, what I wanted to do. We weren't a very rich family. My dad, we didn't have enough money to send me to university. Um, but there was also something that wasn't, there wasn't something that I was like, I wanted to be a doctor or I wanted to be an engineer or I wanted to go into uh, sport therapy. There wasn't something that I, that clear direction. For me, the world was an oyster, and I was like a bit like, oh, what do I want? What What is out there that I can go and find? So while I was kind of figuring out what I wanted, I started studying part-time um, and I was working for my dad for a small business. And it's actually during that time, and this is now a space of basically a year, year and a half, I craved independence. I really, really craved it. There was something burning inside me going, I want my own home. You know, I want to live in my own flat. I want uh, to have my own car and I want so many things. But again, my dad being quite old school and, you know, I started at the bottom. I remember Thursday walking into work with him. He handed me a paintbrush and we had a big warehouse where he kept um, all the different uh, supplies of, of all the different things he was doing. He was a bit of an entrepreneur, so a number of small businesses. And he's like, right, this place needs a, you know, it needs a fresh lick of paint. And I started painting the warehouse. That was my first day, uh, well, the, the rest of the month, basically, of, of, of working for my dad. And I slowly worked my way up, uh, eventually actually owning a tiny little business at the age of 20. I had a, a firelighter business. So making my own firelighters and selling that alongside, you know, some through a third party company, some some wood and some, you know, charcoal. Um, obviously, South African big, especially in the summer season. Yeah, yeah, loads, yeah. Loads of barbecues, loads of brais and, 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 yeah, yeah. and all that. So, so yeah. So at the age of 20, I was given this responsibility and I, and I, I had a, uh, a lovely young lady working under me and helping me you know, making firelighters. But um, there was something more inside of me that bubbled up. And I was like, on this on this trajectory, it's going to take me years and years and years to move out of the house um, and get rid of this bloody curfew that I'm under with my mom. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so, yeah. So I realized that actually I, and I've always had a passion for the army. And, and then I realized that actually as a South African uh, part of, the, because we're part of the Commonwealth, I can join the British military. And I started right. really looking into this. And this became an option that seemed really viable and I really bought into that. I then um, sold everything I had. I saved yeah. up a little bit of money. I had a pickup. I had a, a hi-fi. Is that even still a word? Yeah, yeah, I remember that. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> Comment, do you remember that hi house? Just about, just, just about. about yeah. I used to live in the house when I was a child, yes. 
That's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I... <laughs> hi-fi thing. I remember that period because it was like a big thing to own a hi-fi, wasn't it? If you had a hi-fi, your mates would come around, you'd get it out, <laughs> stick it on. That's it. Yeah, exactly. It, it was like the thing everybody wanted to come. Have you got hi-fi? Oh, come, let me come and see have your hi-fi. Yeah, exactly. How big is your speakers? How many seats? <laughs> yeah. it? That's right. Yeah, yeah. And could you see them behind the mesh and all that stuff? <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, yeah, so selling, yeah. all, selling all that wasn't a... That's not a small deal. You obviously made a big commitment to do that then. Yeah, you know, exactly. I, I was totally bought in, like 100% bought in to, to coming to the UK and joining the British military. I didn't know what I wanted to join. I knew I was always going to go infantry-wise, but yeah, no, totally bought in. And that's exactly what happened. Um, and I was quite far along down the line with this whole process. And then a very good friend of mine decided he wanted to join me. I was like, yeah, okay, no problem. And it was quite a big rush to get him uh, all his paperwork and everything sorted to come over, uh, you know, applying for visas and all that kind of stuff to get into the UK. Um, and somehow we managed it. And myself and Ian, Ian Dibisi, we, we we were very good friends, best friends at school. And we're on a plane, two young boys, age 20, leaving South Africa behind into the the, the, the cold, wonderful UK. Luckily, we came in June, so it was actually lovely and weather, <laughs> to be honest. So, uh, so Still pretty cold compared to South Africa. Cold, but, um, <laughs> yeah, and, and, and literally, it was the, a case of landing on a Saturday morning. Um, I was fortunate enough that uh, my sister uh, lived in London at the time, so we had a, a familiar face on the other side uh, of the pond. Um, and uh, she picked us up, showed us a sight of London, uh, and that was a Saturday morning. And the Monday morning, I was in the careers office in Trafalgar Square. I remember it as clear as daylight. In Trafalgar Square, there was a recruitment office there. Um, and I walked in, and there was an officer from uh, the Rifles Regiment. And asked, can he help? We said, we're going to join the Army. What's the process? And he talked us through a few bits and bobs. Um, and obviously, he's trying to do his job as well. He's trying to recruit for the Rifles Regiment. And we were like, oh, yeah, yeah, sounds great, sounds great. Yeah, yeah, it's a really good option. And I remember um, just before, literally seconds before we, we left the building, there was another uh, guy coming down the stairs, and he was immaculately dressed, and he had this maroon beret on. Um, and he just heard uh, the extremely strong South African accent. I know I still got one, but it's a lot more tame than what it was before. You know, I could yeah. literally say almost nothing to a degree. It was like, yeah, bro, yeah, and that was about it. And he just like, oi, boys. I was like, yeah, yeah, yes, sir. He's like, you boys from South Africa? So we're like, yes. He's like, all you guys joined the parachute regiment. Have a look. And that's all he said. And we're like, okay. And we walked off. And I remember, parachute regiment. And I got to my, stayed with my sister in her little flat at the time. Got there and I Googled parachute regiment. And immediately, immediately I fell in love with it. It was, you know, it was just everything they stood for, everything that the, the training. And, and they, they make it very, very clear, you know, this is not for everyone, and it's only the elite guys that will get through. And this is a challenge. This is going to be a big challenge to become a paratrooper. And immediately, I was like, "This is the one I wanted to join." Um, so yeah, a couple of weeks later, we followed. So, qu question for you, Jacko: Was he South African or was he English? This chap? No, he was English. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, what do you think was the trigger there? Why did he say? Why did he hear the accent and say that specifically? So. He just knew. So he knew we make good soldiers. South Africans, wow. are, it, it was just like, you guys, you come in, you you almost need very little training. You know, you, Amazing. you almost tick the boxes going through our basic training because you know field craft very well. You can shoot already. Most of you can handle a weapon. 
from a very young age and can shoot. You don't need to be taught the marksmanship principles. Right. So basically, right. you're you're halfway there if that makes sense. Without the would it would it be fair to say as well that there is a, a level of just innate toughness there because of the environment in which you grew up in South Africa? Go back to that conversation Harms raised about the TV thing. I mean, you're just out in nature just naturally up against the elements very much so in exactly that you know we, we you just uh, like i say it it's that toughness that we bring it's like south africans are also known for like just cracking on like oh we, yeah 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 yes. that's and, true and they make they make good property investors they just yeah, get on with shit that's <laughs> it let's get this done let's let's move forward so, so yeah right. and it's the same you know they, they can this is the operation this is the mission let's get it done like how do we get along there uh, along with it so uh, so yeah so he you know they knew south africans to a degree had a very uh good reputation within the British Army. Um, and he just like, you know, a big chunk of you guys join the Badger Regiment because that's really right. what suits you. That's really... Um, and I remember as well as... And again, we take a few steps back off a couple of years, standing around, uh, you know, a fire pit uh, uh, or a braai and having conversations with, um, you know, my, 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 my friend's parents and dad, you know, they still had to do national service. And hearing about daytimes in Angola, you know, I was right. hooked on these stories. And the one thing that they also talked about was the parabats. So in South Africa, they, they're not the parachute regiment, but it's the same, but they call the parabats. And, yeah. and it was always, always like we would do this and the parabats will come in and they'll just like clean up. And, and then, you know, it's just like they, they just had this like effect wherever they were, they were like, they got the job done and they move on. And, and they, they had such a, a powerful kind of, I don't know, like an aura around them of, like, yes, we're yeah, here, yeah. we get the job done, we're out, then you move yeah. on to the next job. So there was already like elitism just from that. And and I was like, you know what? Yeah, the Barrack Regiment, that's the one. That's the one. It shows you how little hooks start to lay those seeds, doesn't it? Tiny, tiny, exactly. Tiny and I think that's a lesson for everybody listening today, isn't it? It's, it's don't ignore them. And I do believe, going back to what you said, Harms, that, you know, I'm holding it up here, but the screens, the TV... It's so noisy that people lose those messages. There's so yeah. much shit going on around. They actually missed sometimes like a universal message here because we're just hooked on something digital. And, and I think it distracts us from the real story. That story around the fire pit that Jacko was just describing, yeah. where somebody's relaying their past experience, that's the truest form of story you're going to get. Yes, we're going to have something through the social media. Yes, we're going to have something through a video format. But the real story is around the fire pit being inspired by the story just as if you're listening to this episode we're trying to recreate that fireplace for you and and their family members their, their elders yeah there's that, there's that respect same thing in your culture as well harms it's i mean it's ranker as well the the groups get you go back you go to india kids are kicking a ball around not even a ball sometimes is it it's like the bloody can or whatever. anything, anything. Can't, afford, can't even afford a ball yeah um, but out not in front of the screens yeah um, I think here in the Western world, we've particularly this country in the States, we've just become like so softened by all the nice things we have around us. We have that toughness has been, it's just not been put into us. We haven't grown up with it. That's it. Yeah, that's it. That's who are it. you then? So here's a question for you then. Who was the Jacko at that time, Jacko? Like who was the person that was just about to sign up into the Paris? How would you describe yourself as a person? What, what sort of values were there? Who was that person? That young guy. That, that's a wonderful question, to be honest. It's um, I remember actually again, getting days before getting on a plane, we had a little goodbye celebration with a friends, uh, with all my friends, and and, uh, and you know what? A lot of people just said, "Jacko, you, you're 
actually going to go and join the army? I'm like, yeah, 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 definitely. I, you know, I can't wait. And they're like, we can't see that. You know, you're, again, you're the soft type of person. You always care. You always give up your time. You're, you're very polite. You always, you know, look people in the eye. And, and it doesn't matter if their story is the most dull story ever <laughs> or it's the most interesting story or not. You, your time and focus is with that individual. And they're like, you're going to pick up a gun and, and, and you know, gonna, you're going to have to go to a, into a battlefield. And I'm like, yes, but I'm excited about that. But they couldn't see me as a person, as an individual of how I portrayed myself um, yeah. that way. But what the army taught me as well is that there is exactly that. There is almost like two sides to it. They, there's a time where I had, I had to be Jack of the soldier and I knew how to switch him on and there was a job that I needed to do and there was, uh, there was a mission we worked towards. And then when you're not on the range or when you're not in a in an army environment, you have to switch off because you're you're not a soldier when you're in the pub down with your mates or mm. when you're in a shopping mall walking around with your with your girlfriend. Then you, you're there is almost like a, a line between the two, and you have to di- di- differentiate around that. Um, so so that was very very important. That's fascinating. Sorry, go, 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 go I was going to say, I think, I think that's um, fascinating because it's a great example of how we can also apply it to our lives where right. there's high pressure business situations, work yep. life. And I know there's this conversation about balance, but the reality is you do what you do at work. You do what you do at your job. You're passionate about it. You love it. And then when you come home and you're spending time with your family and your kids and your, your social circles, be the person who you are within that social, social circle. What often happens, I think, is people blur the lines and they take their identity from the workplace, you know, oh, I'm, I'm a manager of people. And, then they, and they take that ego potentially into their social circles or to their family life. Whereas actually, you're not the manager when you're at home with your kids. That's what you do at work. So I think this is a great example of being able to, to compartmentalize or maybe switch and not lose who you are based on the job you're doing at that moment in time. Which leads to a listener's question. How does he do that though? So is there a technique is there a way you've developed to do that jacko again i think well first of all i think that the most obvious thing is your environment your environment will dictate what which one right. you need especially to extreme environments exactly. like you were in yeah, yeah. yeah so true. that will dictate uh, that's very true immediately which one do you need to be which one do you need to switch to uh, in order to do well connect with people or, or or do the job that you need to do in order to kind of get through that situation um but again, that is this is something you I had to learn to become better at over a certain period of time as well. I yeah. knew that again, like I say, so I walked into that, you know, that recruitment office and it was obviously I was more civilian than than a soldier. And yeah. slowly I had to come, you know, find that balance of more soldier, less civilian. And then once you're a soldier, you've got to be okay, right. I was probably more soldier at one stage than civilian. And then when you're in a uh, an army environment you're totally soldier and when you're in a civilian environment you need to be more civilian than a soldier but I think you'll always be a soldier a little bit more than a civilian because once you go through that process and that is exactly what your basic training does your basic training breaks you down as a civilian to rebuild you right. as a soldier because we are faced with challenges and we are asked to do things beyond what we've been you know beyond of what we've been brought up and asked of us as as children or as young adults um, and we need to be able to be able to go and do that job that's required from us and i guess it's acting in the moment where you can't even 
second guess or, or question. You just have to operate under a certain protocol, a certain way because of those circumstances. Correct. Because if there's a moment of hesitation, you could lose your life or your yeah. best friend could lose your, his life. It's, it's, it's literally, it's, it's like that. And that is why making a specific second decisions in the environment that you're in at that moment in time is so vital. And you, you have to train, you know, there's no other way. You know, this isn't something, uh, you know, I didn't join the army and my first day, day one, week one, and I was, you know, a, a qualified trained soldier. You know, it was a six month process just to qualify as a private, you know, as a, as a basic soldier to then go on, to then go on and specialize in certain areas over a number of period of time. And again, it took a great deal of uh, experience of two tours to Afghanistan. You know, my first tour, I was a, I was a young private, you know, eyes wide open going into Afghanistan. Um, I played two different roles. I was a, we did operational, uh, 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 you know, duty as well, but I was also there to train the Afghan National Army. We, right. the whole point was that we eventually leave and these guys can go and protect their country and fight against the Taliban on their own, on their own steam. And we were training these guys. So, um, and again, a great deal of responsibility. I mean, at this stage, I was only nine months out of my basic training. And I was then given a training role as an right. acting lance corporal to go and train um, Afghan soldiers. So, so to remind us, how old were you at this stage? Goodness me, I was 20, 21, 21, no, 22. It shows yeah, your responsibility, doesn't it? Yeah. Okay, so 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 I, I I'm fascinated, as you know, by human change. What shifted from the oh my gosh, that everyone's perception of you being a soft? I think their perception is, is kind is probably a better word. You use that word as well, and sometimes people's perception is kindness equals weakness, which is actually not the case, as we know. But that was the perception. But this person that was also excited about going into an environment like this. Now fast forward, and you're there, first tour. Uh, What's shifted now? How, how have you changed as a person? What, what elements have changed at that point there? Yeah. So again, so again, through the training, through you, you know, there's an element as as a as a soldier. Now there was there was an element of, of toughening up, um, right. And and really like you know, there's not getting <laughs> the soft side of me not being overriding everything that right. you're actually there for. Because yeah. there was an element where, you know, I did, you know, we've seen some people in extremely tough conditions, extremely tough environments. Um, and what was on the nice side for me was I knew we were there to try and make a difference. We were there as well. You know, a part of, of why we were there was also a, a hearts and minds concept, you know, where we do go into communities and we're like, we're here to build schools. We're here to act, you know, to give protection yeah. for you to live your life you know, as freely as you possibly can without, you know, not under Taliban rule, which is extremely strict. Um, and especially uh, for women and, 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 and young children yeah. and especially girls. Um, so we were trying to get that. So there was an element of, yes, you know, you're in a dangerous environment and there's an element where you're going to have to probably react against someone in a very violent way. But we're also there to actually give people a better life, give people a better future and, and, and invest in this country by, like I said, building schools, building dams, laying down electricity. Now, my job wasn't that physically. My job was to, to, to give the protection towards that so engineers right. can come in and electricians and stuff like that and, and do these things. And we can work with local communities to do that. So there was an element of like, 
yeah, there's an element of violence or there's an element of like there could be yeah. a lot of force be used here and I need that. And, and that came out at certain times, but there's right. also like we're here to do good as well. So yeah. actually, actually your core characteristic or one of your characteristics from childhood, which was recognized by your peers and your friends of kind, kindness was actually a great benefit to that mm. environment you was in. Because if, if for argument's sake, there was no kindness and you was very much the forceful type, then when you had to do those duties of building hearts and minds and creating that connection, actually that would have been a struggle. Yeah. Because it's, it's I, I guess in a way it's quite hard to go from a tough stance to kindness, whereas you're starting from a default, which is kindness. And I think that's a, that's a lovely message for everybody listening and that somebody who's kind can still show strength when needed. And we can all all apply that in, in various parts of our life because often the kind person, like Ro said, equals weakness and they kind of maybe feel like they get walked over or their voice is not heard or they can't be a certain person because they're kind. Well, actually, that's not the case. You know, you're, you're a walking example of somebody who can start from a place of kindness and apply other areas of strength when needed, depending on what the circumstance asks of you. On that point, Jacko, I want to dig deeper and ask a question because this is actually quite important because I don't, I, I'm not, this is not about looking at other people that were around you, but not everyone would have had that value system that you've got. So do you feel that there was a, a very deep rooted part of who you are still going back to that parenting that you had from, from, from your mother and your father? Is it, is it in your DNA t- to carry that with you? Do you feel it's real or do you have to pull it out sometimes and dig for it? Like, were there times, or are there times, even today, and I think it's important for everybody listening, when rage, anger, you know, those um, almost de- disabilitating emotions can take over, and the, the person who we are inside that we know we are, sometimes just get fucking pushed away. It's like, no. Did, did that happen? And how do you think you've managed that over the years? Because I don't... I, I, one thing I want to do is, towards the end of this, is come back to who you are today. But I, I still see that's core of who you are even now, after all you've gone through. Yeah, very much so. It's, it's that foundation which has been properly laid, you know, by my parents and by my upbringing and by, you know, the way they brought me up. And, and, and that kind of childhood, it, it definitely is that, um, 100%. I'm also going to be, obviously, 100% truthfully honest here, is that, you know, there is still, you know, yes, there is a days. I can only be kind for so long. There's only so right. much I can take. Um, and, you know, there is days where I do, I do boil over a little bit. You know, there yeah. is days where, you know, uh, I think most likely more so in the last, I would say, year to year and a half, 18 months with the uncertainty that we've, we as a nation, we have as a world has been yeah. facing. And, you know, I've been trying to get married to the most beautiful <laughs> person i've ever met for the last three years <laughs> and i guess that's enough to bring anybody to a rage <laughs> and that is putting me and, and you know so many times you have to uh, rearrange a wedding we have to postpone and eventually everything just seemed you know it's eventually going our way and we're, we, we managed to get a few dates sorted and everything and guess what we're, we're back on a travel ban and we want to host a wedding in south africa and and you know so yes the, the it's when you call it off when do you postpone it when it's just this all this uncertainty and yet yeah, there is boiling points that, that uh, throughout my life that you know there is just little boiling points that i do kind of pop over and i think sometimes 
it, it shouldn't be seen as a negative because agreed. I you, you need that. You do yeah. need that kind of release. It's it's, it's like yeah. a cooker. It's like a pressure cooker. You need yeah. some release from it, and then you almost take a few step back and go, okay, I got that off my chest. Um, yeah. You know, and someone's listened, and there's maybe someone that can actually add advice. And this is beautiful where partners and friends and stuff come in, and they can actually be there for you. And you can start and moving forward again. And that, yes, that has actually happened, uh, you know, e- even within my military career as well. And I think especially, we probably jumped from that first tool almost immediately onto the second tool because that's where I can definitely recognize some some uh, some elements of that. And especially okay. when you're trying to do, you're trying to find this balance of we're here to, you know, we're here to do good, but there's also an element of you know you're getting pushed to your boundaries, and especially, especially when it hits home a lot closer to you when you start losing friends, you know, when, when people start getting injured and lives are getting lost. And these are people that you've spent a great deal of time with. There's an element where you go, wow, um, you know, this is serious now, you know, and like I say, yeah. yeah. And, and, and I remember we've had a fantastic tour and as a regiment as well, we had a, a pretty good clean streak of, of, uh, a number of companies going into Afghanistan, doing a great job, coming back, very few casualties. And then suddenly we went through this, uh, you know, we'd done about, again, five months, four and a half, five months at this stage, and very successful operations. And then suddenly, that one morning you wake up and you've got this feeling, and one of your small group of friends, they've gone on to do an operation, and the news comes in that, you know, their, their vehicle been hit by an IED. And you know we've 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 lost three guys. Then suddenly you're like that kind of this is hard to kind of that kind of oh we're here you know you're doing good for as well you're like I can't help but say that then they, a, a bit of revenge started settling in because you're like right. well you've taken one of ours we're gonna so then anger. then your 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 anger yeah the anger starts taking over and your mind because I remember clearly our missions and operations changed immediately after. That you know the way guys operated, the way guys thought, and the way guys prepared going on operations and missions. After losing three of your some of the best guys you've known, the, some of the best soldiers you've known, uh, and I, I've had a very particular uh, strong bond with one of the individuals that we've lost, um, because I was a mentor to him. Um, he was right. a he was a young private that only came into the regiment a few months before, and I was given. The, the task to kind of take him under my wing and go, you know, this is how some of the, this is how it works. You know, you're not in training anymore because within your basic training for six months, there's, there's a certain way of doing stuff and you're really yeah. indoctrinated into that. But now you, you've passed training, you're in battalion. This is big boys games now. Like you can, you know, yeah, it's different than training, but there's also an element of like, this is how we do stuff within it's battalion. True. And, you know, um, yeah. so yeah, so like I say, I had this opportunity to kind of help him through, you know, that transition from training into into a battalion. Um, Can I ask you a question? So, so one of the things I do with the work I do with people on stage is w- somebody will come up and they're in a re- relationship, Jacko, and the the woman is saying that she feels that he's not he's he's lacking sort of a, se- a sense of kind of purpose or direction, and I often refer to light and dark energy, where he's got this kind of light, playful, almost boyish type energy but she needs a, a depth of certainty almost like a shift into the dark not being not not trying to be negative or aggressive but just with i've got this does that make sense yeah yeah 
what I'm listen, just listening to you here and tell me if I'm wrong, but was there a shift in you in that respect? It's like, fuck, I've now not, I, and I've not experienced this. I've, I've lost friends along the way who have died in the civilian world. I know how that feels, but not, not to the extremity that you've experienced. What you're describing to me is almost that shift, like not that you were a boy because you were out there, but almost like there's a fucking something shifted here and I can't go back to that right now. I have to stay in this place now. It's like, is, is, does that make sense? A light and, I call it a light and dark energy. I, I, I think you describe it absolutely perfect. It, it's exactly, it was like a, yeah, a light and dark. It's literally like someone flipped a switch. Like you say, we were kind of in this kind of light area where, you know, we were, we were doing, the, we were doing and, everything yeah. we needed. And then suddenly it's like, wow, it, there was a switch. And then, you know, and not just myself, but you, like I said, there was a real feeling around the whole camp and every operator within uh, that, that small group that we were part of was there was a switch. There was a difference in everyone and in, in how we operated and how we then went out and, and, and conducted, you know, our jobs. Most definitely, most definitely. I, th- I think, Ro, you may have felt it as well, but when, Jacka, you were describing that that transition, like I, I, I felt it. Yeah, I, I just got it here. I, I felt chills come over me. So I I felt like you just, you took us to that dark energy and, and, I, and I felt that's exactly, oh my goodness, that's exactly the shift. Like everybody. But, but, f- but for the listeners, darkness isn't negative. It's more like a sense of, a different sense of purpose. Mm. And, and maybe the purpose you were there has shifted slightly. And I know you talk about revenge, but I think it's more like, almost like a protection for yourself surely as a unit as well from what you're describing yeah um, yeah yeah exactly it was a protection for yourself it, it was protection for the guy to your left and the guy to your right um suddenly like i say that was always there but it was just like heightened it was heightened. very very heightened to the highest level possible and like i say we yeah it, it was there was definitely a shift and and a different change within mindset and that heightenedness of of going out and being a lot more on your guard a lot more um you know like i said everything's just like yeah it, it's even hard to describe it you know I, I can't even really put it into words but definitely when when someone so close to you um and, and like i say so so i've had this guy that was i was mentoring and one of the other individuals was my mentor so the guy when i came in you know and i looked up to kev he was if there was ever a soldier that I inspire to be, or even if I could be 10% the soldier this guy was, I would be amazing because he was just so good. And he, he was destined to be one of British, you know, the best British soldiers we've ever had, um, you know, to go on to special forces and operations. And and those guys are gone. And they just like, yeah. like I say, so it was two guys that I literally, one was under my wing and I was under one of the other's wing. And then suddenly you find them, they're just gone. And like I said, there's a big shift. Like you say, immediately there's a shift to the darkness, mm. but in the, not in the, in, the, in the hollow way, but like no, no, that yeah. intensity of that everything, energy, yeah. it, that energy just heightens up. And there was a different way that we viewed and, and then launch on operations. I, I know you're going to talk in a moment because I can just sense it. We're getting to the point where you had your experience. But for me, it's really important at this point with everybody listening. Who... So who are you at this point? Because where, what happens next takes you in a totally different path. Who's the person that is Jacko Van Gass at that point leading into where you experience your own traumatic injury, which virtually took your life? I would say who were you at that point? At that who moment in time, we were, you know, there was no, there was a lot well, more of 
Jacko on as a soldier side. Jacko right, Davis. right. Okay, so this is so this is really important. So, so that whole civilian, you are literally has the world, and I think there's a lesson here as well, harms for people. Like when you get so intense, things narrow down, don't they, Jacko? It's like the the whole sense of life's purpose is just this, isn't it? Now, exactly, exactly, and uh, exactly, and your, our purpose shift as well. Like I say, it became a lot more narrow for us. It was then right. We need to find. You know, this is we get briefed. Like this is our mission for tonight. This is the guy we're after. This is the you know the environment and the, and where we are. And it was like yeah. fine. You know, our mission was like before. It was a bit. Oh, we're going after this guy. Uh, it's more into in you know infiltrating the network. If we're getting great, if we don't, you know, we're getting loads of intelligence. And it shifted yeah. to like this is the guy, and we're getting this guy. You know, again, doesn't matter what happens tonight. This guy is we we he's either going to get killed or he's going to get captured, and that's it. There was no varying off that. Um, and that was the mission. So there was no kind of lean, leeway towards any of it. It was like he's going to get captured or he's going to get killed tonight, and that is it. So and is it is it a complete chain of command where you're just you've got a set outcome you have to do, and everybody offers sort of operates as tightly as possible? Is it literally that that this is your world? Yeah. Everything outside there is you just shut off it, from it. Totally shut off. Totally shut off. I remember <laughs> just just on that offside, and just to lighten the mood a little bit um, is that. Um, I remember we were in, I was in my second tour, and Michael Jackson died. And honestly, I think it was about three weeks later, four weeks later, um, we as a small unit, because we were actually out on the ground doing what we do out there, and we came back, and and someone told us, oh, MJ died, did you know? And we're like, no. And I knew, and I... I can just imagine the whole world melting yeah, yeah. about MJ yeah. dying. And we were like, oh, that's sorry to hear. And anyway, so tomorrow, and that was our world. <laughs> Literally, it was like, wow, you know, it's nearly a month of his passing. And yeah. We didn't even know about it. Um, yeah. And then I looked, I came back and I, you know, I looked up and you see all the articles and you see videos and people, you know, crying and, and the, you know, the devastation of people of his passing. But like I say, we were in a world where we didn't know and it, it didn't affect us and we just had to carry on. And that is how narrow that line was. It was just like there was nothing from the outside world that really, that we knew about that could affect us. We were there to do a job. And as long as we're in that area, in that situation, we're there to do whatever we need to do to, you know, to keep the rest of the world safe, to be honest. So, I mean, I, not, it's not about naming names because I, I think you're obviously a tight unit, but how did everybody else handle the environment, Jacko? What did you see around you? Were you a stabilizing force or was there somebody else that everybody gravitated to? I, I can't imagine that everybody had this same level of consistency in there. No. There must have been a lot of emotional roller coasters going on. Very much so. And especially, especially once you're what we call the R&R, your rest and recovery. Uh, because so during your six months, you get 14 days out of the country to come back. And once that rotation kicks in, it puts a lot of strain on us as, as, as soldiers, as operators, because um, you go from a, a, a unit to degree, let's say of 20 guys, and then that's that's three months in. So you're, you're constantly, you're, you're at full capacity to degree. And then guys then start going on their R&R rotation. So you then right. lose five guys on a, you know, on a regular basis, on a 14, you know, uh, uh, a fortnight basis to then go back home. And it's once you remove yourself from that environment to then go back home to then you see loved ones. And, you know, don't, you know, there's always still communication between loved ones and family and yeah. friends and stuff. 
But it's once you have that physical, you spend that time with them, we really see a change in the guys coming back. That Then that last month, two months out there, it's very long. Like three mm. months, four months, fly by. But the last two months, really, absolutely, it's the longest time of your life. So that's when we do see that, that as you just go, that kind of, it's almost like we are all on the same level. And then suddenly there's all these influxes of different reasons to be there, wanting to be there, not wanting to be there. So what's the change then? Because you're almost describing it there. What, what would you say the change is? It is it that being forced to switch back into civilian mindset and family connection and but but as you said, Harmin, because because I think there's a direct translation between the workplace. I know if, I'm not trying to simplify what you went through, but also for the listeners who can't necessarily put themselves out with you, they're kind of doing this in their workplace, their jobs, their businesses. Mm. They can they can be consumed by that to the point when. They then come home and they can't switch off. Yes. So were some people just not switching off at home and coming back, or how, how did you find it? Yeah, and, and, and it goes both ways. So basically, there was right. individuals that probably couldn't switch off and then went back home, and then they were home but they weren't present. You know, they 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 were right. they were they were that husband that for you know that little bit of time he has now with the kids and his wife or whoever, like he wasn't there because his mind was. Yeah. His mind was in Afghanistan. He was he was there. And that's basically a similar place where I was. And or it goes the other way. You know, the guys managed to do that switch. And then that time with, with the family was just so amazing. But then so short to then switch off. And then all they think of, oh, I've got to go back to, you know, some guys fall, you know, back into the, the, the comfort side of it as well. You know, because we yeah. we you know we've slept in some really horrible places and you know there's the, you know there's weeks we spend out in the in the field you know, sleeping under vehicles and in the desert and under a canvas. So, you know, little luxuries of having a warm shower, having a comfy bed, having yeah. a choice of food. I mean, if the living room back then was, you know, <laughs> wow, how amazing would that have been? But, you know, take away food where, you know, living off ration packs for two, three, four weeks of a time, it's not nice. And But it's all you have. You know, that's what we are there to do. So they kind of fall back into that and then come back and finding the other side really hard mm. to go oh, i've got to go back into let's call it a struggle to a degree for them and got to go mm. back into the struggle or this hardship that's a better word go back into the hardship of um mm. you know cold nights you know horrible food you know this xyz you know maybe running out of water for a little while and ammunition and and putting yourself in, in a dangerous uh, environment so so yeah and that's when all those influxes started happening and that's when right. you see different elements of different guys. But like I say, the very f- the first three to four months, everyone's pretty much similar because this is something you you almost look forward. To, you know, you you train to prepare. It, it's the same if if you're gonna if you're training, it takes a lot. It takes a lot of pre- training preparation to run a marathon. You know, there's a lot of input that needs to go into. But if you never run a marathon, why are you doing the training for it? You know, why right. are you doing you know <clears throat> 10, 15, 17 mile runs um and during the winter and all that if you're never going to run a marathon so it's the same you know we do all this training and preparation and we train to go on operation so eventually getting there it's like yes we're here now we've trained for this we're ready for it um and then that first couple of months we're all on the same page and then suddenly there's this different fluctuations that, that comes in um but at that stage in my mind i was just like right right you know every mission was an operation of this is your job for this mission, Jacko, and I was executing it to the best that I can um, of whatever that was. 
I, I was going to say, I think that takes us because you, you mentioned the word mission there, and I think there's a yeah. there's a, a certain mission where everything changed, and uh, I, I'm excited for the listeners to hear it because not everybody will be aware of the story. So I've personally heard it. I personally um, heard you speak live to an audience. I was an audience member taking notes, being inspired. So I'd love for you to transition us to that mission. Now we've got a great idea and a sense of, I, even for myself, this is such new information in regards to how does the world and the mentality of a soldier at that elite level work? And the fact that a soldier has to go home and then return back to the battlefield this is all fascinating. You do, we, we just don't have this kind of, sense of what it's like to truly be a soldier so thank you for sharing that certainly with myself but what was the what was the mission which changed everything what was the mission that took you on this journey of adventure beyond this adventure you've already established so far in your life certainly on this timeline that you've shared with us as, as listeners yeah so we were at this moment in time about five and a half months in uh, and over the last couple of weeks we already started kind of separating a few bits and bobs of personal... Uh, so, so basically, when we started packing. We started. We already started getting our, our, our stuff ready to eventually uh, get shifted back to Bastion. And then from Bastion, that will that, that was a, a big... Uh, one of the main headquarters camps within Afghanistan that we, we used um, to then get shifted back to the UK. So, so a few personal items, a few kit and equipment, and bits that you're not going to be using. So kind of separating that and then... Uh, on the other side, I like all my operational kit laid out. So basically, everything we're going to be using within operations, you know, helmets, night vision goggles, all that kind of stuff, and a little bit of fizz kit, some some shorts in the t-shirt, and some trainers. And that's basically what we needed. All the other little luxuries that we brought with us and stuff we kind of purchased along the way, that kind of already got packed away and ready to get shipped off. Um, and this, it was. And I remember this very clearly. So it was the 19th of August. And um, to be honest, we were actually not supposed to, there was nothing on the cards to actually go on a mission, on an operation that evening. And so it was late afternoon. It was roughly about 3.30, 4 o'clock in the afternoon. We suddenly got a call uh, to come into the office. Um, at this moment in time, I was based in a, in, in a fort uh, up in the, in the mountains uh, near Kabul. I was very lucky, very fortunate that during my time in Afghanistan, uh, I actually deployed uh, on on a certain mission or as an, on an operation, um, the overall operation. Uh, and within, I think, two months in, there was more help or, or manpower required on another operation um, that uh, took us. Uh, I was based in in Bastion for a long time, and then we went on to Kandahar, and then I was then uh, selected to go and kind of be one of the guys that helped out on, on, on a different kind of mission where the previous one was purely uh, on, on, a, on a, I'm trying to think of the right wording here, on, on a, uh, an operation where they were trying to disrupt the, 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 the Taliban kind of structure. So going after right. high value targets where this, yeah. this, the one that I was currently on was still after high value targets, but we were also infiltrating the narcotic trade. So, because obviously the narcotic trade is what helps fund the Taliban. Um, so right. the, the growth of opium and stuff like that, that they sell uh, on the borders and, and all around the world, obviously they fund to pay their soldiers ammunition and all that kind of stuff. So we, my mission was then a bit of both of that. And this late mission came in very, you know, very late. 
and the brief was given the next day was a very, very remarkable day within Afghanistan history. The 20th of August was going to be the first day of free elections that Afghanistan had in okay. many, many years. And intelligence came through that there is actually quite a well-renowned, it's weird to say, actually, it's hard to say that, a well-renowned IED facilitator. So this guy's actually got made a name for himself. It's a way he, he makes the IEDs and there's a, uh, you know, he always had like a signature of of the way he facilitates and makes IEDs. And anyway, we were after just this let guy. just let our let our listeners know what an IED is because some of them may not be familiar with that. It's term. an improvised explosive device. So right. and they work in very quite a few different ways, to be honest. So um, I, I would say the very first ones, uh, kind of a few years back before 2000 and, uh, 2009, uh, a normal ID would almost be like a landmine. You will step on a pressure plate and it right. will explode underneath you. <clears throat> um, it then went on to what they called a, a wire system. So instead of, so we then figured out ways to kind of detect these, uh, the, the, the ones you stepped on and then we managed to avoid them. Then they, they kind of improvised them to actually uh, actually have a wire running from wherever they planted all the way to uh, a safe place for them. And then someone would observe whether you then either drive or walk. And when you're kind of close or over the ID, they would put a battery uh, onto the, you know, connect the battery to it. And then this electrical shock will then obviously could set the ID off. Um, and then even to further advance uh, beyond that um, was, you know, again, a cell phone. So giving... Uh, a, Calling a code or or sending a signal to the to the device to then go off. Gosh. So it really really advanced stuff that that's happened in the course of a couple of months. You know, not even mm. years of how the Taliban integrated. You know, to a degree of of these facilities of these IEDs. Um, so this guy we were after, and he was one of them that was constantly renewing and 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 kind of almost like upgrading <laughs> to a degree these IEDs, mm. um, and he was well renowned within our community. So we had very good intelligence that he was in a specific area um, and that he was actually planning on sending a number of suicide bombers out to disrupt, for these guys to go to voting stations and disrupt the votes uh, or, you know, the voting stations um, for the next day that's that, that's due to, to be held. Um, so a very good briefing. We went away from the briefing and then, again, every group and any individual has specific tasks. And that night I was given the task of being a uh, attached to a sniper. So I was a, a helping hand towards a sniper, so um, playing a sharpshooter's role. And so I immediately went back, and then that requires my my military kit to change all the time. So where I keep certain ammunition, what type of weapon system I will be using. So I've I've used different number of weapon systems across my uh, during my time there. So again, changing pouches for different magazine holders um, and the, the whole setup again. And what job I was going to be able to do. So do I need? Uh, can I carry more stuff on my front, uh, or do I carry more stuff on my back to be able to crawl? In this case, I was going to be carrying. Um, uh, ladders on my back so you will see these ladders in b&q um, telescopic ladders yeah, um, yeah, yeah you buy them in b&q and they, they pull out and there's a little button on the button uh, on the, yeah on the bottom that you push and they all collapse again so we had these ladders and then what we did is we connected a a, a, a day pack you know or, or a backpack to them so basically you have the ladders and you swing it around and you carry them like a backpack 
and that would be my job that night. So I have to assist the, the sniper and we were going to be overwatch um, for the special forces guys when they're going to conduct this operation and try to capture this guy. Um, so went away, uh, made sure all my kit is correct. And I think it was about 11 o'clock, 11.30 that night. Uh, we operate mostly in the cover of darkness. Uh, we had all the capabilities of doing so. Um, and we flew out. You know, helicopters came to our camp, picked us up, lifted off and fly. And I think it was about a good hour and a half flight from where we were. And, you know, it was yeah. very quick and simple mission. We weren't even going to try and be sneaky beaky. This guy was a high value target and we needed to catch him immediately. So um, our helicopter landed just on the outside, uh, the outskirts of a village where he was known to be. Uh, and I remember the special forces guys actually literally just abseiled straight onto the building that they knew he was in. Just to that immediate like we're in on his roof and they were there. Um, so to a degree an element of surprise, but um, also not, we can do that in a different way as well. We can land maybe like 10 miles out and then okay. slowly walk in um, and again using the cover of darkness to our ability this time a decision was made you know this guy i think we just needed this individual so badly that we couldn't take the risk of actually landing far, further out potentially getting spotted and him getting noticed yeah and, yeah you know, tipped right. off that are they coming for you so the reason was like just go full guns blazing onto his roof and try to capture him um and we all got our mission and that's exactly what happened. We landed, uh, our helicopter landed in a specific area, dropped us off, and we went straight onto a roof that we identified would be a good lookout point. The uh, SAS guys did exactly what they needed to do. Very successful operation, very successful mission. We captured this guy. We also captured the 10 individuals, you know, sadly, uh, you know, young teenagers that he was kind of, that they, he's had for a number of weeks where he... Uh, groom them or, uh, you know, kind of convince hmm. them to wear their vest and to, to blow themselves up. We also got the suicide vests, which was oh amazing. Gosh. So so we captured all of those. We took these guys off. You know, no one was, there was no, uh, no one was killed because um, these guys are actually more valuable to us alive to get information and to infiltrate the rest of the network. Um, um, and again, to see how they make the facility, the, the IEDs and stuff like that. So yeah. Loads of, loads of intelligence that comes from, from capturing this. Um, we were actually making our way. So at this stage, we got these guys. We got them tied up um, all in a line, and we were guiding them through the streets, and we were heading into the desert, further into the desert, to where the helicopters were going to pick us up. Uh, we always do this as a safety precaution. Um, again, so there's no nearby buildings where someone can maybe fire a bullet or an, uh, an RPG, a rocket propeller grenade, to the helicopter and then bring us down. So... We usually do a really good 15, 18 miles out of into a desert, into a very safe area to do so. So we're on our way out, and it was, I think it was about a good hour into the walk, the, uh, a call came over the radio, and it was the pilot. And he said, you know what? The allocated landing site where we're going to pick you guys up, he wasn't happy with it. Something spooked him. I can't to this day actually know or remember why, but what he's done, he's giving us coordinates for a new pickup point, um, and we do to head there. Now, the only drama with that is, is that we knew the route from the village to the original pickup point was a clear route. We knew they would, they wouldn't, we wouldn't really come across anything. There wasn't buildings nearby, all that kind of stuff. We, it was quite a safe route. Now we go into the unknown. So from that very moment in time, from our location where we are, we had to move into an unproven route, a route we haven't right. 
done uh, you know reconnaissance on or yeah. aerial photographs or whatever it might be and it actually did lead us into a small kind of build up area anyway so about a half an hour into the into the walk onto this new the, uh, onto the new pickup point we spotted some movement on the high ground uh, a few guys in a patrolling formation um, at that moment in time we couldn't identify weapons on them it was just kind of silhouettes we went down on one knee and we, we worked very closely with some of the Afghan forces, some of the Afghan special forces, actually. They speak the local language, so we send them forward to tell these guys, um, we're in the area, we need to conduct some searches, and we'll be on our way very shortly. We just, that's all we, we need to make sure they're safe um, or harmless to us, and then we'll move on. Yes. How many of you were there in, in this group? So in us, so we were about what we call, so we differentiate between uh, especially myself, a, a small group of us as uh, uh, um, parachute regiment guys, uh, yeah. a number of special forces guys, and then a number of uh, Afghan soldiers. I think all together right. we were probably about 30. So oh, there's wow, about okay. five of us Glad from, from uh, yeah, five of us from, from the parachute regiment. Uh, I think about 15 um, operation, no, sorry, yeah, 10 uh, special force operations and then uh, the rest was Afghans. Um, um, so, you know, not I'm glad a, you not asked that question, though. Sorry, Jack, I'm just interrupting. I'm glad you asked that question, though, because in my mind, this scene and this picture you're painting, yeah. Nico, I've only seen in movies. And of course, in the movies, it's a group of three or four guys. Yeah, yeah. So exactly. I'm thinking Jacko, a couple of other guys, yeah. and then you've got the, the, you know, the people you've rescued slash captured behind. But actually, thirty people. This is a unit. This is a. This is over that distance. People over that distance, uh, yeah, fifteen yeah. miles. Then being diverted. So sorry, just wanted to just yeah. say that was my only connection to this. So this is fascinating. <laughs> no, and it's a, it's a great question. And like you say, it, it it really it's true that. And and now, if you think about it, and to to kind of paint this picture, so we're we're heading into the desert. We're all walking behind each other, um, but also to you know, uh, and this is basic day one, week one training that you get from the army. Again, when you're in a long line. Um, so if if someone in front of you steps on a landmine, you know you can't be all bundled up because that will take out you know three, four, five of you. So again, right. you've got to be spread out. So you have a you probably have anything between seven and ten meters. Oh my gosh! A distance between the guy in front of you, and then it's the same with the guy behind you. So you can just imagine how long this line is. With, two, you know, 200, two, yeah, two hundred plus meters. Probably. Yeah, exactly. And you, we've got two of them, so running side by side again, just to okay, bring right. it a little bit closer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, okay, you yeah. Know, one on the left, one on the right. And right. Then these two lines kind of moving up this valley um, in silence. As much silent, yeah, yeah, yeah. As silent as you possibly right. can. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, exactly. And um, so night vision goggles down. But it was difficult because, you know, you've got this, um, and I'm so glad it wasn't my task that night because we had a number of detainees, you know, and these guys are are uh, uh, blindfolded and then also handcuffed. But you've got to guide these, I right. poor guys, but you've got to guide these guys, you know, in, in total darkness. Um, and yeah. they haven't got a clue. They obviously can't see their, you know, the, the next step or where there's a rock or a, or something like that. So, you know, that's that's quite a difficult task as well. But we've got these two lines heading up a, a small kind of revere, like a valley kind of kind of going yeah. up into a little bit of a, onto a high ground. And we spotted these guys on the top of the high ground. And at this stage, the the Afghan soldiers moved forward. So we went down uh, on our current location, so down on one knee, and we've got our lasers kind of covering uh, everything. So again, with the night vision goggles, only it's a little green laser that only you can see. Uh, it, it's not like 
you know, oh, yeah, a yeah. green laser that you pull at, yeah. out, oh, at a cat or something like that. So, um, so it's only us that can see it with your night vision goggles, but right. we were covering our arcs. Um, and they were shining a number of commands, and you, you can you can hear them, and then quite a lot of conversation. Like mm, this, this sounds a bit, you know, there's a lot of conflict going on here. And then suddenly, one of these guys just there was a big, big spray of AK-47, a big burst um, in our general direction. And these number of guys, they got dropped very quickly because obviously we got the Afghan forces approaching them and speaking to them. And there was an, a few of the guys uh, from. Uh, obviously on one knee covering their arcs, but also lagering these guys up, making sure that if it does go wrong, uh, you know, they're covered. But very soon, they got neutralized. But then from another location, someone was firing in our general direction. And then suddenly there was another one. So all these little firing points started kind of appearing because when you fire the gun, you can see the muzzle flash in the darkness. So we can see, obviously, you can hear the bullets coming over your head. But you can also see uh, muzzle flashes from various different locations, and which was unknown to us. But it's only like I say, quite, we found out quite later on. We actually walked in to a Taliban training, a, a Taliban stronghold, which we didn't oh, even God. knew was in the area. We didn't even know that, and um, so we walked straight into the Hornet's Nest uh, when we we approached these guys, and then they opened fire to us, and then obviously that set off the whole thing. So about 40 minutes in, it turned, which now is severe firefight. And I mean a severe firefight. So again, you think of something so, of a movie. It literally is a movie scene with explosions going off everywhere. There's bullets everywhere. Um, we had to call in air support um, a number of times. We had a big, it's called the ghost ship, and it's a C-130 uh, big plane. And it cruises around uh, on top of you and being it comes in quite low and then gives covering fire. It gives support to you as troops on the ground. And you, so, so the people you're detaining are, are there. Yeah. How they? So you're having to manage that as well as go through the whole process of defending yourself and trying and reattacking. Yeah, exactly. It's trying to keep these guys' heads down. Um, you're there to try and obviously lay down fire, give yourself protection, and give your your comrades protection. Um, and there's a number of ties and and. <laughs> And, and, and rightly so, to a degree, if you, if you think you put yourself, you know, these guys were trying to run away a number of times. They're like, obviously, they can't see. So yeah. but they were luckily, they were all kind of um, attached to each other. So one would yeah. kind of start and run one way and then fall to the ground. And then you're like, no, you're not going nowhere. So, But it was controlling that situation, controlling the fire situation, then controlling like what's going on. And then you're trying to listen to the radio, where everything is, where people are. And, you know, it turns – and that's where – Again, it just comes with training. You just literally, you zone out. You like, you start kind of, it's almost like you, you, what's the right word? I think I can't say. Compartmentalize. Compartmentalize. Yeah. So, you so, know, so you're go, just okay, focusing right. on I'm that just, moment. Correct. Yeah. So in this moment, I need to know what's going on in the radio. Okay. Then my, my senses will go back to my earphones and go, right. This is what's going on on the radio. Okay. I've got that information. Next thing, I need to lay down fire to do for my sniper partner to put on a fresh magazine because he just ran out of bullets. Okay, do that. Do that job well. Okay, he's back in. I can now go back into safety. Right, the detainees are there. Um, Am I safe? Okay, right, I need to put on a magazine. So you just got to – and your training kicks in. And this is – Is it like a hyper-focused sense of awareness? Uh, Is it second by second? Yeah. And during training, you go through drills over and over and over again. 
and to a point where it's, you know, to a point where you find it irritating when your instructor goes, okay, right, we're going to go through this weapon system one more time. And you're like, I know this weapon system inside out. And you don't know why you're doing it. And it's like, no, one more time, one more time, one more time. How to reload a magazine. What happens if there's a blockage? This, 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 this. Right. And you go through, through each and every scenario a million times. Mm. But when you're in that scenario, suddenly it clicks. Because right. I was going through a, a drill to put on a f- magazine without even thinking about it. Muscle memory. Muscle memory, exactly. And it just stuff just happens. You know, before you know it, I'm like, you know, there's even times that I surprised myself. I was like, whoa, I just did that very quickly, correctly, and safely. Um, okay, I can carry on with what's required now with the job that's needed. Um, how 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 self aware are you at that point, Jacko? Is it, is it? Are you? Is there fear? Is there like fuck? What's going to happen next? Do do you even think about anything outside the world, or is it just that moment? that action can can you multitask emotionally at that, at that point yeah no you can and, and again this is where your training kicks in because i i honestly i remember it so uh, special uh, kind of i mentioned it earlier that was the 19th of august at this moment in time we're back in you know this is the early morning of the 20th of august um so we, you know this is about two o'clock in the early morning hours two three o'clock in the hours and more early morning hours 20th of August, and I was in this firefight, and it literally, I was, I was actually, it, and just to come back to your question there, is once that, either that bullet flies over your head, or you pull that first trigger, and the sound of that bullet leaving that chamber, something switches in you, and like you say, then it's like, right, we're on, you know, there's just like, there's just we're in this firefight now and everything yeah. just happens and you're, you're focused, you know what you're doing, you know, there's no distractions, there's nothing else. You just go into this, this whole new world where everything, you know, it's almost like you've been born to be there or you've trained to be there. And I was going through this time and, I, and it was the 20th of August and it was my 23rd birthday and I was literally oh firing these bullets off and I was thinking, this is the best birthday ever. And it suddenly I realized that it's my birthday and I was thinking, who else can spend their birthday firing at the enemy, you know, and being in a big firefight at this moment Fuck. in time? And I was just like, I always had this little laugh, you know, this little smile oh my on, my, on my face. Um, and I remember actually um, the information coming through the radio that they were trying to to kind of outflank us. And I was right at the back. So they were coming really close to where I was. And I was like, yeah, and I actually spotted some of them. And I had a at this moment I I, I had a, a my a, a UGL an underslung grenade launcher on my weapon, um, and I was like, yeah, I can you know put one of the bigger bullets in, fire them off, and it's a very accurate shot, and it's a little small explosion that it creates. But it just it just kind of it was enough of a reaction to the enemy for them to go, oh, we've nearly been hit here, and then they kind of went they kind of went further there, and then we kind of knew where they were, so we can then. You know, direct our fire to them at that moment yeah. in time. But I was going through all these motions, and then, um, yeah, like I say, you just go through it, and it's it's all second nature. And I can remember very clearly my sniper partner or the, the sniper shouting magazine. And when you shout magazine, it means you're either low or you're out of bullets. And he has to go firm. And then what you do is you kind of up your rate of fire um, to actually not to give the enemy the idea that someone is out of the firefight and constantly, constantly put on a magazine. 
So what I do, instead of firing you know, a bullet every couple of seconds, I would fire a bullet every second or, or, or right. I, I, I up the rate of my firing. So yeah. it sounds like there's still two guys firing, but in the meantime, yeah. it's actually just one. So I up my firing rate. Um, and I was very closely situated to one of the um, Afghan soldiers, and he was a PKM gunner. He was a machine gunner. And he was giving a really good rate of fire as well. But again, what happened was here was that um, as he was firing, his machine gun was spitting out a really big flame out the front of the, the yeah out of the front of the uh, the nozzle of the of, of the uh, of the machine gun. So he was actually you know showing again where he was, and two RPGs, rocket propelled grenades, was then fired from my left side. Um, and the one came over our heads, exploded in the distance, and the second one was fired low, bouncing and ricocheting. And I think he was the target they were trying to hit him because, again, he was identified with, with the flame from his, from his machine gun. So they kind of fired it towards him, but they're very, very inaccurate weapon systems, an, an RPG. It's something you kind of put on your shoulder and you kind of point it in the, the kind of general direction and you fire it off. It's, it literally is almost sometimes a bit of a a lottery whether you hit something or not and for, and for listeners that's the i guess the kind of visually famous weapon that we would have all seen in the media because yes that's, that's the classic one there's a there's like a tube on somebody's shoulder and that's the rocket being propelled that's that's kind of the famous visual that we've all got to see exactly that exactly that so two of these are fired so at this moment like i said i saw the first one coming over our heads uh, and then the second one was kind of bouncing and ricocheting off the ground and then this one was heading towards our general direction um, and in the side of my night vision goggles, I can see this this red glow uh, heading towards me, and the sound of this rocket—it's it's a horrible sound, and I will never forget it. But just the sound just getting louder and louder, and I was like, "This thing's going to hit me!" And in a very split second reaction, I've twisted my back and my head to the oncoming rocket. Um, and as I said, you know, my job that night was carrying these these telescopic ladders, and luckily I had that on my back, and. As I twisted my, my back to this oncoming rocket, the, the rocket made impact onto the ladders. And that was that detonated the, the warhead, you know, the explosion. And mm. part of the blast then ripped my um, my left arm off immediately. Uh, I was thrown about a couple of meters up in the air and then away from my original position. And I landed really badly. And I remember waking up really dazed and very confused and seeing loads of bits of little bits of shrapnel you know that's still burning and on fire all around me and and actually my clothes as well and I was like I just didn't know what happened um and I was on fire and I was like patting myself out and all I can hear was this this the guys in the in the background still firing uh, and all that's going through my mind is like I need to get back into this firefight I, I why am I laying on the ground I should be I should be covering fire and I was struggling to get back up and couldn't really sit back up but there was this just this huge struggle really and then suddenly i realized i looked down and i realized that my left arm is gone you know it's just blown clean off and i kind of it was it's almost like this again it's literally like this movie moment where everything just slowed down the whole world like i can mm. hear a bullet fire and it's like that's one bullet second and the world the whole world just slowed down and I just looked at my arm and it was you know, a bit of a bloody mess. And then I just like, okay, right, right. I need to try and do something with that. And I, 
I carried a tourniquet on on my chest, on my uh, on my body armor, and I ripped my tourniquet off, and I started to apply it to my 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 left arm, and I tried to do it up, and but I couldn't do it up tight enough, and I was then kind of going through little motions of like real back pain and shock and stuff like that, and very luckily one of my teammates recognized that I was out of position. He started looking for me and came crawling over. He then helped me with the tourniquet, but what happened as well that. Uh, on the on my left side, I used to carry my radio, and that's where the rocket hit. So none of my radios was working. Um, I had no communication mm. with any of the other team, and luckily he then radioed in, saying that I've been hit and and that we need a medic. And very soon, I received life saving medical treatment from my friend and a medic that came in and just guided him through it. And I remember he's just like, do the tourniquet up. And he's like, yeah, it's up. And, and the medic is like, no, he's still bleeding from the arm. You've got to do it up tighter. And I, the pain was unbelievable. To try and squeeze every single bit of your arteries down to the bone to stop mm. the bleeding. I've never felt pain like that in my life. And my friend as well, I remember him visiting me in the hospital months later. Just saying, Jacko, that night, he's like, I thought I'm going to break your arm. You know, the little bit you had left. He's like, the medic just kept telling me, like, tight and tight. And he's like, I was I was twisting on this tourniquet, and I was just like, surely that's tight enough. And it wasn't. And yeah. it's like, one one twist more, one twist more, one twist more. And it just kept going. And at this stage, I kind of went numb to the pain. And for some reason, my arm kind of, it's almost like it just kind of shut off. And... I started getting, were, you con- were you conscious? Jeff? Yeah, I was so you, conscious, you- yes. Yeah. Um, and I can just see the, the medic kind of rationally, obviously the, the focus was on my arm, clearly. Um, and I remember clear as daylight, this, this horrifically pain going through my leg, especially in my ankle. And I was like, have I lost my, have I lost my leg? Because at this stage, I was getting, you know, put down, you know, to lay down, you know, don't, don't sit up. Um, and I was just like, Doc, I, my, my leg really hurts. Have I got my leg? And he's like, he just grazed down. He's like, yeah, you got your leg, you got your leg. You know, both legs were there. And it's just like, Doc, are you sure? It's just like, the pain is so, he's like, Jack, your legs are there. We need to look at, you know, your arm uh, and any other areas that you, you're bleeding from. So, and I was constantly going on about my leg, but it was almost like a distraction. And to be honest, the broken ankle was probably my smallest or the least severe injury I had. And funny enough, how the body kind of referred all my attention to that. Apart from, you know, I've, I've, I've just lost my, my arms, gone. Um, I've got yeah. shrapnel wounds on my left side, which I didn't even know. But, you know, I was bleeding from everywhere. Um, but my broken ankle was the one thing I remember <laughs> that night going, that wow. was really painful, that broken ankle. Um, and to, the, to a point where the doc actually went, Jack, your legs are right. Shut up. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. Just, just, and I was just like getting morphine. And again, like, there's so many protocols around that because again, you can't, you don't want to slow someone's heart rate down too much. Because right. the adrenaline is coming down as well, so it's it's regulating all of that. And luckily, we get trained, uh, you know, with all the stuff, so which is amazing. And all I remember, I was saying through myself that night, I was like, okay, I was just like, hang on to every word the medics. If he tells you to, if he tells you to blink your eyes, blink your eyes. If he tells you to open your mouth, open your mouth. If he tells you to move, move. And I was just like. He was like that that being of life. I was just staring at him and going, whatever you tell me, Doc, I would do. I would have and yeah. he was that kind of that lifeline I was kind of hanging on to. 
of just give me an instruction and I will follow right. it. Um, but just don't let me go. Just And I was just like, you just don't die here tonight. Uh, and anyway, the guys were doing an amazing job. And at this moment in time, the Taliban is getting closer and closer and closer. And we were nearly overrun at this stage. Um, and I remember the medic laying, the guys laying over me because at this moment in time, we called in another air support uh, kind of mission. And, and I think it's till this day, it's recorded. So again, these guys got guidelines of how close they can actually come to friendly forces, you know, to the guys on the ground. And there's danger close and danger, danger close. And the guy who called that fire mission in put his whole career and his life on the line that night. Because if he didn't give the permission for that fire support to come in as close as it was to us, it was, it was that close that if there was the smallest mistake from whoever is releasing that fire mission, if they didn't get the coordinates exactly right that night, they were going to kill us instead of the enemy. It was that close. And I remember feeling the ground shiver and moving underneath me. And I can remember as well the dust and some of the shrapnel kind of falling over us. And, you know, the medic was laying over me, protecting me from that. And the moment that bombs ended, it was just back up and straight back to work with me, trying to save my life. Then the, the next significant sound that I will never remember, I will never forget, is that Chinook. I can... I can I can identify the son of a Chinook out of 20 different helicopters because that night that was the son of an angel coming in and somehow we managed to get helicopters in. It was an American call sign, so American helicopters actually that was in the area. Um, we couldn't get the British ones in because we have so many helicopters that they didn't, they couldn't take the risk of coming in and getting shot down. And they were like, oh, you've got to look after yourself to a degree. Until the, until the enemy is neutralized, we can't come in. Oh and we're God. like, we, it's, yeah, we've got a casualty here. And I was classed as the highest priority casualty. He's, this guy's going to die if we don't get people in. And luckily, the call was heard by, by another, yeah, like I say, an American helicopter. And they were like, you know what? We'll come in. No trauma. And I remember those helicopters getting landing. Um, and I was put on a stretcher and run into the helicopter. And the very first thing... Uh, I remember looking up, seeing this guy with a really big helmet speaking into uh, into his radio. And he just looked at me, shook his head, and then he kind of gave this little glance. And I was kind of, I think I was still bleeding from somewhere with my arm. And he just stood with his heel into this, what do you call it, just above my, my, my pec, so just into my shoulder. And he stood with his heel and all of his weight onto my shoulder trying to clamp an artery again just to stop the bleeding. And I just <laughs> remember, oh, hell. what are you Fuck. doing? Wow. Um, so he spotted that instantly. He, he spotted that, he I, was still, that I was still bleeding. Hemorrhaging, hemorrhaging yeah. Exactly. And he just stood with all his weight on top of me. And at that point, I lost consciousness. Boom, out. But Jack, hold on, hold yeah. on. Uh, you know what? I, I've got to say this, and I, hopefully you'll say yes. I think, Harms, we need to do a part two to this podcast because... <laughs> There's so much beyond this point that we want to bring out this journey, but this is too profound to not hold this space because part of this is understanding what has defined who you've become today as well. If you're open to coming back in and doing a part two to this, because I'm, I'm wary about your time as well, yeah. would that be okay? Very happy to, very happy. Is, Harms, are you okay with that? I, I love that. And I think part one, part two, if we can 
if we can release them roughly at the same time because this is too insightful to skip to rush so so yeah. so keeping the space then just uh, remember this whole journey so far in this interview has been understanding the shifts that are going on in Jacko Van Gas as a person what i just want to go back to the point where you're on your back you you look up and you look down you see your arms missing what's going on man is there fear what what conversation is happening or is it just the noise the fuck everything around you has cut that out what's the mechanism that's going on to keep you alive at that point there is it autopilot from the training or is it something else i think it was a combination of the both there was definitely autopilot from the training 100% there was like again the, the amount of time i played a casualty and the amount of time i was a friend of mine played a casualty and you go okay, through these okay. scenarios okay. over and over and over again again it's the same like that weapon you know it's the same the amount of time i I, I, I put on a magazine or clearing a blockage or whatever it might be. It was the same over and over again, over and over again. And suddenly you find yourself. And then the, the thing is, I've always thought, I, I always concentrated so much in those lessons and especially the medical lessons because I was like, this is important. I can someday save someone's life if I really right. concentrate. And then suddenly I found myself in a reverse role going, I really hope my friend concentrated here. <laughs> <laughs> and he can save my life. <laughs> so, so yeah. were you aware of those? I mean, did it feel like that? Was it? Were you? Were you suddenly at the hands of somebody else in your mind, or were you still sort of? Because even the fact you took your hand, you know, you put the thing around your arm, yeah, and you start that process. Yes, yeah, so, so exactly, and that was it. That, that, you know, it was like I laid back down. And I was like in this daze, and, and and you know, this this real big confusion, and and like you say, the whole world slows down. There was I I, I could not. It, it's just. Um, almost like white noise. It's just like a boom right. around me. But like you say, just, but to still have the, the the clear thinking of, I need to yeah. do something here and started the process of putting on a tourniquet. Like, you know, I'm not saying I did a great job here. You know, that apart from that, the fact that I was never going to stop the bleeding myself, but the fact right. that I was like, I was, I knew there was a process to follow and I was already kind of going through the steps of that. It just, yeah. It's just that repetitiveness of I was in that kind of save mode and then there was also just like, hold on here, hold on here. And I remember, like I said, I, just, I said to myself constantly, just don't die, don't die. You're not dying here tonight. Right. I, I wasn't afraid of dying. It was just, for some reason, I didn't want to die on that that spot, that, that Afghan floor. That, mm. It was almost like, I felt like if I died, I was going to be a burden I was going to be a hindrance to my teammates. And that was, I was like, they're going to have to drag a body here. But if I can be somehow responsive, somehow contribute to getting myself out of the situation mm, as well mm, mm. with my teammates, then at least that's, you know, and as long as I'm alive, they're going to fight to keep me alive. So it gives them an incentive as well to like, let's get out of here. What's jumping out at me, though, is whilst listening to you, Jacko, is the level of, responsibility is out of this world like exactly. given the highest pressure exactly. situation given that there's a limb the blood your mind is still operating but your mind is Shrap still shrapnel shrapnel yeah. a leg a ankle, broken ankle but the mind is still saying i am just as responsible i am 100 responsible for my situation and what's going to happen next step by step which is just just incredible listening to that 
And I, my, my hope is, and part of the reason I want to go back to this space, because I, I, I just get a sense of how you are as a person, but people listening is stuff happens on a daily basis. And sometimes it just takes that little extra commitment to that moment. And I know this is, for anyone listening, it, it might feel like, fuck, but it's nothing like this, row. I get that. But for some people, it does feel like that. Sometimes something happens on a daily basis, and in that person's world, it feels like a big thing. Yeah. Um, exactly. And it's it's learning to have that in that moment discipline. You talked about being present earlier on. Yeah. I think it's so true, isn't it? It's not being afraid to be present with what you're facing because you're there now. What the fuck? I'm here. I've just got to fucking deal with yeah. it. I remember that. Night. It, it, it's, it's so weird. It's like, and I don't know if it's indoctrinated or... I don't know what it was. It was even that, you know, this guy was putting on his tourniquet and the pain was just unbelievable. And then there's an element where I was like, oh, I was screaming. And then as I was screaming, I was like, no, 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 you can't scream. You need to be quiet. Oh yeah, of course, because <laughs> there's a firefight still going on. Wow. There's a big firefight still going on. But yeah, like I say, I was just like, oh, don't give your position away. But my position has long been gone you know compromised to a degree with the explosion and people around me and stuff like that but there was still an element of you can't scream you can't give your position or you, you know we're still in this element of like yeah there, there's certain protocols that you have to follow but i was in the biggest pain and i was like letting this little burst of like uh, you know, just pain out of the, you know, the, the, the screams. But then yeah. the moment I do, I was like, oh, you've got to pull it back. You've got to pull it back. You can't do that. So it, it's it's so difficult to actually just describe where your mind was. And, and you're, you're just, it's almost like a computer. You're, 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 you're robotically you're going through this motions of right. this, the scenario of, you know, don't give your position away. You're, you're, you're in a hostile environment, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Uh, you've got you know, the perfect soldier. And then you're, you're fine with this other element where you're like, just like my whole world just turned upside down and I'm, I'm fighting for my life. So, you know, it's yeah. finding that balance. And, 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 I, and I don't know how I did it, but there was elements, like I said, I was going in and out between those two where I just need to release some pain or some kind of form of screaming because of the pain. Um, and that brought relief. But I was also like, I need to be professional here and, and not scream and not give my position away to a degree. So, so yeah. How are you feeling knowing that there's somebody there right by your side at that moment? I mean, that surely is almost like that last bit of yes. rope that you're hanging on to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, they're, and they're giving up potentially their life whilst they're looking after you. Exactly that. It's exactly that. Like I said, you know, the medic and, and my teammate, um, Reese was just there all the time. And, you know, these are... Not always you've got to think about they're giving up their time and not so much their time, their, their safety, their security to work on me and, and help support me. We've just lost three guys, myself and two other people, out of a firefight. So that's three guys not putting bullets in the right direction to keep the enemy right. at bay. So, you know, so the responsibility on the rest of the platoon and the other guys as well has also heightened to actually go, right, with three guys down we need to step up and make sure that we cover all these other bases as well. So plus yeah, there's, a, there's the detainees that you've managed to detainees. helicopter in, walk them 15 miles. It's just, yeah. And they still trying to run away. And then, yeah, you got to keep You know, they still got to be kept at bay and get loaded onto the helicopter safely and all that kind of stuff as well. So, so yeah, but um, yeah, like I say, it, it, it's, you think back on it now and you're just like, 
it's mad. It's absolutely mad of, of how some of the stuff plays out and, and some of the reactions and stuff like that. And some of it's vague and some of it's so clear. Um, and again, yeah. having the, the conversation with some of the, the other guys that was there on a night, uh, you know, many months later down in a pub with a few beers down house. And, and, and how, what was interesting of how it played out differently for each individual. Each person. Which was amazing. And then you're like, you put all that together, you know, that formulates night, but how everyone experienced it differently and what they saw and, and the information relayed to them. And, you know, some of my best friends was further up the line, but when it came through to them that someone's been hit, they're like, okay, well, okay, that doesn't matter. But eventually when that information came through that it's Jacko, and again, they, they were like, there's a shift, there was a difference between Fuck! It's Jacko. It's it's just, yeah. It, it's weird. It's like okay, a teammate got hit. Someone's um, a, a T one. You know that's bad. But they said the different the feeling they had when between when they knew it was me and it wasn't me. Yeah, was totally different. And then how they then reacted as well. When they actually made their way from the front of the the, the firefight almost to a degree to come back to me to then help me get onto a helicopter. Um, oh my god! And then you know it it's they. There was a shift in them once they yeah. hear that it was once they heard it was me. Uh, it just shows you how even in extreme situations, a sense of bond, a sense of meaning, a sense of connection in that moment, it, it just takes over, um, which I think people f sometimes forget to do that on a daily basis. We become so consumed with what we're doing. Yes. There's someone else around us. So there's so many learnings from this just conversation with you that anyone listening if you're feeling like that maybe especially that we're recording this leading into christmas maybe there's somebody in your family that you haven't reached back to for a while just fucking do it because you just never know do you it's only the regret afterwards i mean you know the extreme situation where your friends coming back through a firefight to try and help you that can be translated to somebody who just hasn't picked up a phone and spoken to a family member for six months because of an ego or an argument or some fucking fight like that. Exactly. Something so, so simple, something so meaningless to a degree can have yeah. Such, yeah, such a big effect. And, and like you say, by picking up the phone, by actually just going to someone going, you know what? Let's just talk again. Let's sort this out. Or you know. Friend, Friendship, family and bonds are just too important. Yeah. And especially when you're going through something, when you're going through something adverse, something which is troubling you, challenging you, uh, that's when having or reaching out to the person can save your life, quote unquote. Um, and I yeah. think that's, that's something else which is coming that's out. That's the metaphor that's, here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So Jacka, you're in the air, you're in the helicopter, this, these twin bladed sound that you're never going to forget now. What, what's happening now? So the, he's standing on your shoulder Talk us through the next phase. So, so did you you blacked out? When did you wake up? So six days later, I woke up. Oh, oh and wow! I'm in I'm in Sally Oak Hospital. I'm in a, a intensive care ward. I'm still in a lot of pain. Um, obviously, they've sedated me. I've been I've been kept in a coma for a long while, um, and I'm slowly coming out. And my last clear memory was being in this firefight. I remember being in this firefight and I remember actually losing my arm. Um, and then suddenly I, I'm kind of dazed and, and I can see my, my mother's face and I'm like, what's my mum doing here? And then I look to the left of her you know, and there's my sister. And these were at the time probably the two most important people in my life. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa what are they doing here? Like I said, there was a recognition of, I've been hit. I've been, you know, injured, and I was, I yeah. was 
I just thought I'm in a I'm in a hospital, either in Kabul or Bastion or somewhere in Afghanistan, and they're there, and that whole region is extremely dangerous because even Bastion and, and and Kandahar they it gets attacked on a daily basis. You know the the you know the Taliban will come past and fire a few mortars from the back of a pickup truck and then scoot off again. And, you know, that mortal can f- land in a, in the space of a camp right. anywhere. So, and that happens on a daily basis. Mortars, rockets, you know, small arms fire, you know, just literally like point in a direction, something will happen. Um, and I knew that. And I was like, no, 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 they can't be here. They can't be here. And it took a lot of convincing from the, my family and the doctors. And I remember they actually took the, the, the brakes off my bed and they wheeled me to a window. Because again, I was just in this hospital environment where I was like, you know, this could be anywhere. I could be yeah. I could be right. in Dubai. I could be yeah. in South America. Yeah. It's just a hospital. Um, but your brain is thinking I'm in Afghanistan. My brain is thinking I'm in Afghanistan. And they wheeled me to the window and they're like, look, Jacko, there's you you you're back in a you know you you're back in Birmingham. You're in Silo Hospital. You know, there's there's green outside. There's trees. You know, there's there's the British weather. <laughs> it's <laughs> literally like it's not warm and, and sunny anymore. So you're 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 back you're back in the UK, and um, and that took quite a lot of kind of time to kind of just figure this out. I was like, well, the last time I remember clearly was in a, I was in Afghanistan, and 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 then suddenly you you're you're with friends and family. It was very confusing, very confusing. And then again, you didn't. I remember the arm, I, and I, I was I was looking down at myself, and I'm like, right, I've got, I've got this really weird thing on my stomach. I don't know what's going on. My left leg was in a, a, a big cast, like a big kind of a metal frame type of thing, and just bandages everywhere. Even my right leg was uh, the top of my, the whole of my thigh was kind of bandaged up. Um, my ankle was fused, and all that kind of stuff. And I was just like, what is going on? Um, and then they started explaining, like, well, you've lost your left arm above the elbow. You had a collapsed left lung. I had shrapnel wounds to my left side, which punctured um, some of my internal organs, which led to having a colostomy for nine months. And I was looking at this colostomy, I was like, what is this thing? I've never even heard of the word colostomy. And yeah. yet alone know what it is. And I, I now have one. Then my leg, I've, I've lost a third of muscle and tissue on my left upper thigh. Um and the injuries were actually on my leg so severe that it was touch and go whether they are actually going to amputate the leg above the knee or not. But they were like, we will obviously do everything we possibly can to keep the leg. And I had severe infections in, in, in that kind of area as well, within the leg, within the wounds there. I fractured my left knee. I had a fasciotomy on both sides of my left calf. I had a big chunk out of my left, uh, my, the back of my left calf. Again, another strapper wound. And then the injury that I thought was so horrible that night was the broken ankle that was just yeah. so painful. And and again, they had to kind of pin my 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 my, my ankle with with plates and screws and stuff like that. And um, and it's literally looking down at myself that I was like, right. I remember the arm, and that kind of yeah. it's almost like the brain already kind of made peace with it. Yes. But the rest of it just blew my mind. And then that's when Fuck. I knew I was just like. Oh, this is life changing. You know, this is this is career changing injuries, and that was hard. That was hard because my body was going, yeah, we need a timeout here, but my mm. mind was already thinking, like, how do I get mm, back to mm, Afghanistan? Mm, mm. How do I get back with the boys? 
how do I go and do the job that I need to do and that I love doing? And that was a big conflict, really big conflict. And did that, ha- did that, ha- was that like a thought that just hijacked straight away? Was there, because you had your mum there. I mean, she must have been, when you were, came out of a coma, that in itself must have been for them just, oh my God, he's here, he's yeah. awake. Immediately. It was a thought immediately. Once I was uh, seduced enough, uh, you know, or, or off enough drugs to actually have right. a, um, uh, yeah, a, a sensible, a sensible conversation with someone. <laughs> with yourself. With myself as well. Um, <laughs> The, the, the question was, can I get back to Afghanistan? Literally, the first thing I asked the doctor was, how long does it take to get a prosthetic? And in my mind, it was literally, I was computing this. I was literally like, right, the legs are a bit screwed, but don't worry. We'll get we'll get that sorted. I'll get back to some fitness. No worry. It was the arm. I was like, right, can I have uh, something that's going to be able for me to hold the rifle, to point it in the right direction safely and be accurate? And can I do, you know, a, a magazine change and all that kind of stuff? Can I go out and do the, the job that I like and that I love so much um, and go out and do my duty? Can I go out back to Afghanistan and join the guys? And and that was literally like for one of the first questions I, I asked. Jacko, was that, was that driven by, see if I can word this right, was that driven by the fact that you love what you do and you wanted to be there or was it, unconsciously driven by the fact that fuck i need to be able to be function because what else if i can't does that make sense was it a conflict of shit the alternative i don't even want to entertain or was it a desire to be back there or was it a combination of both of those things it was a combination of both both yeah i wonder and i would say it was the initial thoughts was the first one was was bigger than than the latter so the first one was more like I, I love what I do so much. It was it was the lifestyle. It was being with the guys. It was it's yeah. every single box in my life, and I didn't want to give that up. And then I think that slowly diminished over the course of days, or even within hours, but within days, that diminished. And the, the latter of, I need that. I need to get yeah. out there. I need that. That's my identity. That's who I am. That's yeah. who I am. That's that's all I know I can yeah. do. Because if I can't do that, what the, what the fuck am I going to do with the rest this of my life? It's profound. That, that then overrode the, the, the first one. And that was like, yeah, I need to get out. I need to get out. I need, I need, I need a prosthetic to get, yeah, I need to get going. Yeah. And that was, yeah, like I say. And then I, I was having this battle in my mind. And... My body was just like, no, no chance, no chance. I mean, we've got bits missing here. We've got colostomies. We've got, we've got yeah. stuff from your leg. Like, we need to chill out. And my mind and my body was in absolute two different places. Conflict. Mm. And the reason I asked the question is because as much as what happened to you was, without a doubt, the moment, that turning point, really the thing that defines who you are today is what you did next with that thought process, isn't it? It's that wrestle it was going on left and right. And, and before uh, we jump into that, well, I think that's that's the pause point. So exactly. We, so that's Partly the pause that's, point yeah. for for us, the listeners, to say, yeah, <laughs> tie this back right to the that's start. That's partly why I wanted to bring it up. Yeah, the the, the hook at the start and, and the the message I want to get across to the listeners as we as we before we introduce Jacko was when adversity strikes, when something major happens in your life that transforms it to the point where you can't go back and do what you did. The question is, what do I do next? How do yeah. I do that next? And I think 
we are perfectly placed to answer that question in part two, which will be coming straight up. And I think that would be a lovely point as well to just go just go back into this this turning point in your mind. Can I just say personally, thank you. I mean, I know you and I have spoken over this before, and I know you've stood in front of stages and spoken to children and adults and businesses and conferences globally. And for anyone listening that does run a business or whatever, you need to reach out because he's an inspirational speaker. But thank you for allowing us to dig that little bit deeper and and go into places which maybe not everyone would ask you those questions. And, and I, I feel blessed that you've allowed us to do that, by the way. Thank you so much. Yeah, no, it's, it's a pleasure. And like I say, it's um, it's actually quite interesting revisiting some of those places, to be very honest. Um, yeah. You know, I look at it from a different perspective. I haven't spoke about it in that day for some while. And, and yeah. even though I look back on it now, and I can actually still learn from that, even, even though I've been through it and I've learned from it, there's even still points I can probably take back from it uh, even now and, and yeah. apply on, on a daily basis. Um, so yeah, yeah, no, th- thank th- you for, for, for making it so comfortable for me to, to actually go back to, to, the, to those, those, those memories. So c- will you bless us with part two? Because part two is that journey that happens next and all the incredible things you've done since as well. Uh, but I actually think it wouldn't have had so much impact for the listeners had we not understood the real depth of the story that you've been through. But also going back to the to the, the little meat eating lad that was uh, trying to get back at home for eleven o'clock. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And still, eleven o'clock comes now, and I'm like, oh, there's, there's something inside me that kind of. <laughs> Oddly enough, as we're recording this, it's eleven o eight, which is really synchronistic, isn't it? It's wow. All, all bit in the morning, but yeah. So, so yeah. Look, I, I look at my phone eleven o'clock at night, going, I'm, I'm waiting for my phone call. Jacko, where are you? <laughs> yeah, and then um, Catherine turns the music down. Turn the music down, exactly. Yeah, can everyone just shh for a moment? <laughs> so yeah, well, it's, it's been an absolute blessing, and uh, you know, thank you for coming on today. We'll we'll uh, we'll definitely our listeners are going to get the privilege of part two of this. I'm going to let Harms wrap up. Actually, can I just ask, just quickly from you, Jacko, because we always try and finish with something. Is there a a personal message you sh- you'd like to share with the listeners just at this point? Anything at all, just uh, from everything we talked about, ju- just one word of wisdom or a feeling that you have intuitively having gone through this interview? Gosh, you know, that's a great question. I, th- I think hopefully someone, uh, in anyone, you know, the, the listeners to this wonderful podcast will take something from that. And and, and again, hang on for, for part two. And thank you very much. I can't wait to come and share part two. But I think from today as well, it just, um, you know, I think sometimes we just need to reflect a little bit as well of where what we've done and where we come from i think sometimes we're so oh, wow. driven to, to everything uh, you know to be faster to be more a little bit more of this a little bit more of that and today's actually opened my eyes because i've actually as i was talking i'm, I'm taking myself back to these these memories you know be that good mm. and be that bad but it it made me realize sitting here speaking to you guys of just how far i have come uh, in mm. life and we will speak a lot more about that in the second podcast but it's actually lovely to reflect back on on those memories and those times and i, I think sometimes we all just need to maybe sometimes reflect back on on life of of just mm. how amazing we are actually how, how amazing we are and and how how far we have come from any scenario that we've faced in in, in life so so yeah man that that is the i'm, wow. getting, I'm actually wow. i don't know if you can see but i'm moved to tears here that is the perfect message fuck that is the perfect message. You couldn't have said it better. What a gift. <laughs> Amazing. <Yeah. laughs> Thank you. Wow. So that's Jacko. 
Ro and myself signing out. We shall see you on part two of the Cicado podcast. Hello, it's Dr. Ro here. Harms and I would like to both personally thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of the Cicado show. And if you've gained just one insight, something positive that you're able to use on a personal, on a professional level to help your life and maybe other people's lives, then please complete an important action for us, which takes less than just two minutes. Please become a supporter of the podcast by going to cicado.com. And as a thank you, you'll get access to exclusive supporter perks. And don't forget to simply subscribe to the show, share this product with loved ones. And we would love if you would take a moment to give us a review and let us know just how amazing this episode was. Thanks again for listening. This is Dr. Owen Harms signing out. We'll see you on the next episode.